here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome to our latest Books with Hook segment. Before we dive right in, I would just like to say that we're putting a pause on submissions to the segment because even though we've been quite discerning in terms of which ones we've picked, we are already fully booked up until October. So even if you submitted now, we wouldn't be able to get your work before October. And I know that, you know, people want to go out on submission before then. So we're going to look at reformatting the show, perhaps having some people submit and then come onto the show and we discuss it with them. We certainly want to invite people back whose work has been critiqued to hear how it went in terms of revisions and what kind of results they got once they started sending those revised query letters and opening pages out. So you're going to see some changes. So once we know exactly how that'll look, we will advertise for submission 
submissions. For now, we're just putting a pause on that and we hope to get you more information soon. Cece, why don't we dive into that first query letter? Will you read it for us? Absolutely. Good day, Carly and Cece and Bianca. I know that my story is not in one of your preferred genres, but I would be grateful if you would provide me feedback. I have so wanted to query you both, continually impressed by your compassion and your sharp minds. Thank you for this opportunity and for a taste of what working with you might feel like. Title X is a complete 78K contemporary fantasy tending to magical realism. Though a standalone, it has the potential to be the first in a series. Readers who enjoy Kelly Armstrong's Canesville series, Signal to Noise by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, and the emotional struggle in Cat Howard's Roses and Rot will respond to Jane. That morning, Jane's husband insists she head out on an errand for him. When she returns to find him murdered in his study, her world falls apart. However, not only has she lost her husband, her lover, her once best friend, she discovers he's been keeping secrets from her. Big secrets. Secrets like learning magic, harvesting and storing it in statues, and that he may have stolen their premature child's life energy. As Jane searches for the truth of who Tim was and what he did, she discovers that Tim's mentee, Marcus, wants Tim's knowledge. In fact, he demands it as his right. On the one hand, Jane cares nothing for this magic, but on the other hand, one of these statutes might hold elements of her precious infant daughter. Going from Ottawa to Paris and back, Jane finds guidance in the magical world and support from her sister in the normal world. And a series of accidents cause something special to awaken in Jane as well. I am a public relations specialist and a registered nurse living in Ontario. I have a certificate in creative writing from CourseRA.org, and I've attended the Kingston Writers Fest for three years running. I am co-organizer of a local bi-weekly critique circle called Rich Large, and I regularly immerse myself in writing podcasts. I have a second manuscript drafted in the same world as Title X. You'll find the first five pages of my manuscript below. Thank you for your time, Writer X. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly, why don't we begin with you? Well, I appreciate that um, they gave us the little heads up that this isn't one of our preferred genres. So that always makes me do a little bit of research. And so so I was thinking about, you know, they mentioned contemporary fantasy, tending to magical realism. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, is it one or is it the other? Because these are actually two different categories. And then through the comps, again, try, trying to figure all of this out. So so that kind of, you know, already has my ears perked up in the sense that I, I'm trying to, to sort through exactly what category it is. But overall, Overall, I think that the actual query itself is extremely intense. I mean, there's a lot going on here. I think there's a lot of actual plot happening. There is everything from, you know, this husband who has been murdered. There, you know, is magic happening. There's the premature child's life energy. So there's there's a lot happening here. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was intense. And so for the sense of an actual query, I thought it was pretty well constructed. But that said, I, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what category it's in. So so that got me thinking when we went on to the actual pages. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Okay, Cece. 
What was your feedback on the query letter? So like Carly, I also appreciate that she let us know this was not our genre. I will say that the plot was super intriguing. And even though it's not a genre that I typically gravitate to, I was excited to read the pages. When I read this, I was excited to read the pages. I thought that she really, you know, followed the formula in a good way of what a query letter has to contain. I know, well, obviously the title has been redacted, but you know, I would know the title. I know the word count. I know the genre. Yes, we contemporary fantasy and magical realism are super different, but I will learn in this podcast what the specific differences are because again it's not something i'm familiar with we have comps i know exactly what happens in the plot like the inciting incident i also really liked her paragraph with the credentials so that was really really well done you know my two very minor things if i had to give feedback it's one of those query letters that i would just keep on reading but the purpose of this is to offer feedback so here you go sylvia moreno garcia her there was a small typo on her name it's sylvia and it's written sylvia Silva. again it's a typo it's obviously like a fingers on keyboard think. I want everyone listening to Books with Hooks to know that we are totally fine with the typos. We make, you know, everyone, everyone's been there. It's okay. But again, since our job is to like give you all the feedback and because you're going to query so many agents, it's something to, to look out for. So it's Sylvia. And then the second thing is, is her life in danger? Like what I, I absolutely get that there's this, this mentee who wants Tim's knowledge, right? Like, and then, and we clearly understand why this isn't so easy for her, why it's not like, here you go, here's knowledge, because, you know, there are specific stakes that she has addressed. But my question is, is it like a danger situation? Like, is is my pulse going to be pounding? Is it going to be one of these books? Or is it going to be more like, I don't know, like the Night Circus, I think it's one of those books that I actually read in the genre. Um, It's magical realism. And there is a battle going on in that book. But it's not like the pulse pounding sort of battle. It's more like slow burn sort of battle. So so I guess my, that would be my one question. But Truly, I think if I just read the pages, I would probably get my answer. So it's okay. Okay, Carly, let's dive into those pages. What was your take on them? Yeah, so just uh, so the reader knows, or the listener, sorry, knows what's going on. I'll, I'll tell you guys a little bit about the, the plot. So the, the character shows up at a storefront. They're saying uh, Wellington Street in Ottawa, which Ottawa is my city. So shout out to my city. And they have, she's trying to go into the store, but she realizes that the store is closed. And so then we pop back into the past or, you know, that earlier that morning. Um, and we see an interaction between the wife and the husband and the husband saying, hey, I need you to get this statue appraised. And that's why the woman was at the store. And that's why we figure it out. And the husband's trying to like shuffle her out the door to go get this, this statue appraised after she's had a night shift as a nurse. So um, so there's a lot of you know, questions like for us in terms of why does he need this statue appraised? Why is he shuffling her out the door? Um, and why is the store closed? So those are the kind of the kind of questions that we're left with. Okay, so I felt like the interaction between the husband and the wife, I understand that we're trying to show that this is a very strange request. And this is a very cold interaction. But I, I was just having a little bit of a hard time with it because this is the first time we're you know, really interacting with these people. And we're starting at such a uh, intense moment where these two aren't showing any love between each other and this kind of terseness. I'm not sure if it's on purpose, like the terseness of the dialogue or whether it's just we're trying to get as much information possible. So yeah, I would just figure out a way to kind of either work through that dialogue a little bit more, uh, maybe even make that section like a little bit longer. Like we only have a few kind of back and forth in terms of the, the dialogue and the banter and just kind of be in that moment. Let it tell us more about the actual marriage itself as opposed to like the actual interaction, I think. So I think there would be a little bit of work to do there. 
And then I'm starting to wonder about whether this is urban fantasy or magical realism, because we are clearly in our world, right? So we know that they're going to a storefront in a modern city. This is contemporary. So I'm getting the sense that maybe this is more urban fantasy and not actually magical realism. And so that led me down a big rabbit hole of trying to figure out what the difference is between urban fantasy and magical realism. So I, again, did a little bit of research for us. So I'll kind of explain what I learned through my research. I think that magical realism is used as a bit of a buzzword. I think that people think it sounds a little bit you know, different or edgy, or if people don't know how to say like, oh, it's a bit fantastical, you know, they're just throwing in the word magical realism because I think that they think that encompasses what they're trying to say. Um, but I put the call out on Twitter and I had an agent friend of mine, Don Juan Song at Howard Mornheim, get back to me and explained um, some really important things about the difference. So I think one of the most important things that I learned through my research is that magical realism is a very specific tradition coming out of Latinx fiction like Marquez. It's increasingly frowned upon when applied to non-Latinx writers because of the tradition. So I would say to think really carefully about whether your book is actually magical realism, making sure that if it is magical realism, potentially you are Latinx because that is where the tradition comes from. Or again, your comps are also Latinx authors like the Marquez title, which is considered the kind of grandfather of magical realism. So those are some things to, to think about. And so the definition of magical realism um, in the dictionary says a literary genre or style associated especially with Latin America that incorporates fantastical or mythical elements into otherwise realistic fiction. So I think that's, again, just emphasizing that it does have to be part of the Latin American tradition. So if somebody is writing a book in North America with presumably North American characters in our world with a bit of a spin, it has to be called something else. And so they mentioned in here in the in the query itself, it could be contemporary fantasy. I'm thinking actually that this is uh, urban fantasy. So I'll, I'll read out the definition of urban fantasy for us. Um, urban fantasy novels, along with stories that some people refer to as contemporary fantasy, take place in our world, but not our world as it actually exists. They take place in a version of our world that has fantastical creatures, supernatural occurrences, and other magical systems added in. Unlike magical realism. However, these magical rules and creatures are acknowledged and explained in the books that contain them. So to me, this is definitely urban fantasy, or I think urban fantasy can be a bit of an outdated term. Urban fantasy also is more of a publishing term, I think, than a reader's term. So I think if you were pitching this, you know, as, as somebody just in general, I think contemporary fantasy is the way to go. So I think this author was on the right track. So I would just say in your pitch, definitely call it contemporary fantasy or urban fantasy instead of magical realism. So I'm not sure if you read Etta and Otto and Russell and James. That's kind of takes place in North America. It's an older woman. It's almost along the lines of the Harold Fry books where this older person goes on this long walk for whatever reason. And while she's walking, she's talking with these animals. So a fox or whatever the case may be is. And these animals are clearly not real. She's not really having these conversations, but like it's not addressed that this may be her mental state. And that's like definitely not an urban landscape. I mean, that's, you know, that's her walking out in the mountains and stuff. So would that then be contemporary fantasy? I think so. A lot of it has to do with, we don't talk about this too much on the podcast, but the, but the way that that publishing positions book, because that book, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think was more pitched as, or positioned as like a book club or like up 
market fiction, even though it maybe had fantastical element. And that is why I think things keep like getting called magical realism, because it sounds like a more upmarket way of saying urban fantasy when actually it's not. So I think a lot of this is the difference between what is the actual book? What categories does it fall into in tradition? And then how does publishing actually position these books, which I think is a whole other really, really interesting conversation. Yeah, it's really, really interesting to me coming from a non-SFF background to kind of figure out what the differences are. But yeah, I thought I would I'd share a bit of that research with you guys. Okay, Cece, what did you think? First of all, Carly, thank you for the research. I wish my grandma were still here because she would have loved this. She loved magical realism. She probably didn't even know the word because it was just stories for her. But she loved, loved, loved magical realism. And, and, uh, and yeah, and that was fun. Okay, so pages. I've gone back and forth on this since I read it. I want the, the writer to know that this is really well written and that I was really intrigued and that I would have kept on reading if we had more. The mini scene in the beginning, and you know, Carly explained this, we're, we're at the, we're on Wellington Street in front of the antique shop, except the antique shop has been closed. There's a for lease sign hung. And she searches her phone and she's like, oh my gosh, this thing has been closed for a month. And then she says, damn it. And under her breath almost. And then like, there's the line break and we go back to that morning. I don't know if I like that. I'm, I'm, I've gone back and forth because you typically we say no flashbacks, but to this author's credit, she did it in a really efficient way. Like it's a short scene. It did intrigue me, but I don't like having read the whole thing. I don't think we need it. I truly think that the beginning of her story, meaning, you know, the interaction with the husband and the wife, I think it needs a little bit of work, but it's so intriguing already. Like, why is this husband shoving her out the door? Like I was like, he's having an affair for sure. Cause that, that's where my mind goes. But I think it's so intriguing enough that we don't need that. That's it's not really creating that much intrigue in my opinion. So I also want to share since we've been doing this for a while now, I have a pet peeve <laughs> with dialogue. And it's when someone says, damn it. And that's all they say. This is not a cursing thing. I have no issues with cursing. Damn it is barely cursing, let's be honest. But it's just so generic. I'm really sorry. And this is totally just my taste. Please keep your damn it if you're into your damn it. But like, think about it. It's very generic. I just wanted to, I don't know. I I, I wanted something more specific. It's, my, my favorite cursing is always the British kind that Hugh Grant normally gives in these rom-coms. So like with Notting Hill bollocks. and well, <laughs> either, you know, bollocks or whatever, or fuckity Fuck, fuck, fuck. It's always <laughs> the, the, adding the, the fuckity part to it just always gives me the giggles in, in all of these. So, yeah, definitely more interesting than damn it. Carry but, on. Uh, I just, I don't know. It's, it's such a small thing. And again, none of these things would make me stop reading because... Come on, right? That's not how pet peeves work. I thought there was a really cool line right in the beginning that was, she smiled to hide her feelings, one of the few useful things she learned from her mother. I did not count the number of words in that sentence, nor my fast counter, so I can't do it right now. But there is so much that I just learned about this character in one sentence. So brava. So, okay. So Jane is brushing her teeth, timber, sin, and is like, I need you to get the fishing boy appraised right now. Credits to the author for not pausing and explaining the fishing boy is a statue. She does not do this. Wonderful. We learned through dialogue. That's great. I did think, however, that the, the part of the dialogue where she says, I know you just got off your night shift, but we've had breakfast and I need you to go. So he says that to her. That didn't feel very natural. That felt a little info dumpy. Nobody would talk like this, right? Like you're brushing your teeth. Your husband walks in. If I just finished a night shift and my husband walks in and tells me to get a statue appraised, he's getting that statue slung in his head. I'm so sorry, but that's going to happen here in my house because I'm exhausted. I'm going to go to sleep. But, but yeah, but this patient woman, very patient woman, 
just says, oh, okay, like, okay, I'll go, but I don't understand why it, and then he interrupts her and says, good. So I'm thinking, why is she accepting this with like no explanation? Is this kind of behavior typical? Does he typically ask her to run errands? Like, or, or, or has he never done this? And maybe he's the one who's always running errands for her. So maybe, maybe she's thinking, okay, I guess I can do this one thing for him, even though I am exhausted because he's like the best husband ever who like makes me freshly baked croissants in the morning and coffee. In that case, fine, I'll do it. Like, I just wanted I honestly think this is like a, like a surgery situation. Like if you think of your writing as like surgery, you can like get a scalpel, open up a few spaces in between a few paragraphs and put some very carefully placed lines that could just explain to us why this woman is so passive. I feel like this was a perfect opportunity to set up so many things like the marriage itself, the actual interactions, how do they, what is normal or abnormal about this situation? Because this is the opening scene in the book, it should be an abnormal situation. And then therefore it should be explained why it's abnormal. So I think CC is getting at all the good stuff here. That line, listeners, because it's the opening scene in the book, it should be an abnormal situation is great. That line, please remember this line. And that's what this is, right? It is, it is a weird thing. Just, we need a little bit more of in her head. It's, it's, I'm telling you, it's like four lines will fix this problem. Not all at once. So it's an easy fix. I think there's also a part where she says, keep the bed warm for me. But then right before this, he had said that he had had to go to the clinic. So that was confusing. I don't know if maybe there's reason for this and we just don't know it yet there's a part also when she's talking before she leaves and there's a blank look and he's miles away I want to know is this typical is he like a dreamy sort of person who just is you know distracted not in a mean way or does he not pay attention to her is he a bad husband the kind of husband who makes you get things appraised and like speaking of this whole appraisal thing have they talked about getting it appraised before is it something that's been on their to-do list for months and they just haven't done with it do they need the money and they're hoping the thing is worth money and if it's like such a fairly earlum wouldn't she like wrap it in something she just walks out with it I just I had a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. My brain is weird. Okay, so then she breaks the statue. So there's another line break. She's in the driveway, I assume, after the, the scene where we saw on, on, on Wellington Street, right? And she breaks the statue. And she says, well, fuck. She said, her eyes filling with tears. I wrote a note, but don't, I want context. I want to know, like, is she, I don't know, super scared, like super scared for his reaction. Is she feeling bad because she broke his favorite statue? And the author delivered two paragraphs later, not even two, yeah, two paragraphs later, but they're very short paragraphs. She tells me that he had been fascinated with the statue since he was a boy, that he'd wanted to touch it. But until they unwrapped it with their wedding gifts, he'd never been allowed a closer look. So the author, I always check for this. I write notes on the margins. And when the author starts delivering answers to the questions I have, not all of them, because that's also a good sign. It's just a sign of a good writer and good job. This is very good. I also like the part where she says Jane squared her shoulders for the conversation ahead, or rather for the monologue and Tim's unhappy silence. You know, I think the the one big note, which we've, we've touched on this, but like, just to wrap this up really is this man is going to be dead, right? Because when she arrives, he's dead. And we knew this based because of the query letter. So all our only chance of seeing them in real time, so to speak, is this scene. We might get flashbacks later and that might be super useful, but this is our opportunity. So I think we need more. I think we need to develop this more carefully, not necessarily longer word count. It's not just about adding stuff, right? Like good writing is about compressing more than it is about adding necessarily. So 
We just need to understand their interaction a little bit more. I need to feel like I know them. And I'm sure that as the author, you know them really well and you know their marriage really well. So it's now time to show it to us. Holly, you had something else to add there? Yeah, I, as Cece was um, was talking, it was bringing up some more thoughts in my head about him shuffling her out the door with unwrapped statues. Because by him not wrapping it or ensuring that she wrapped it before she left suggests to me either he doesn't actually care about the statue at all. And he's the one that wants it appraised and therefore we're supposed to ask the questions about this or the author just hadn't thought about it. And so I'm going to assume that this is an intelligent writer, which, you know, I believe that they are um, because they're sending us this really interesting project and we're debating about it for 20 minutes that the author is trying to suggest that he is intentionally being careless. And so I agree with Cece. I think we really need to really make sure this scene is serving all of the characters and serving the reader as best as possible. So I think there's some work to do here. It's all very interesting. All right, let's dive into our next query. Carly, would you like to read that for us? Yeah, here we go. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cecilia, I'm such a big fan of the shit no one tells you about writing, and I'm glad you're here to tell us the shit. I learned so much from your critiques. I couldn't help but hope for the opportunity to hear your thoughts on my own project. Thank you for the work you guys are doing to help demystify the publishing industry, and I hope you enjoy. Title A is a 91,000 word YA grounded sci-fi novel that channels the speculative mystery of When the Sky Fell on Splendor by Emily Henry with the ethically gray antagonist and futuristic biotech of This Mortal Coil by Emily Savannah, set in Riverdale's Erie Americana. Just be yourself. That's what everyone says when 17-year-old Allison Keller is forced to spend fall semester in her mom's tiny town. But Allie knows what they really think, literally. Since witnessing a mysterious spaceship crash when she was 11, Allie has had the unpleasant experience of hearing the thoughts of everyone nearby. To protect herself, she follows a strict set of rules. The most important, no one can know about her mind reading. Easy enough until she's forced to face the one person she could never lie to, her estranged and, wow, he got tall, childhood friend, J.D. If she can avoid him for a few months, she'll be back in the crowded anonymity of her suburban high school. But Allie's not the only one in town with secrets. When Allie uses her mind reading to uncover a plot to murder JD, she is forced to pick between warning him and keeping her secret. In a desperate attempt to do both, Allie digs for tangible proof of the plot by befriending the suspect, mean girl Jillian Collins. But when she discovers Jillian's motive is connected to her own mind reading, Allie must embrace her loathed power if she is to save JD and just maybe the human race as she knows it. I hold journalism and business degree from the University of Iowa and have enjoyed a career across TV news, corporate communication, and digital marketing. I'm an active member of my local SCBWI chapter and the Manuscript Academy. For most of my minutes are currently spent coaxing two little boys into quality human beings, and I relish a day of coffee transitioning to wine with my husband. Thank you for your time and consideration, BD. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Okay, Cece, what did you think of that query letter? This was a very well-written query letter. I know exactly what's going on. And I wanted to give a shout out to the author because in one paragraph, I understand central conflict stakes, where the character stands, what she has to lose. It's it's very well written. I have embarrassingly little to say other than good job. Yeah. Wow. That's speechless. <laughs> that's, wow. That's like a first. Excellent. Okay. Right. So the author's now doing their happy dance, probably in one of their grocery aisles, because people tend to listen to the podcast either while they're walking or doing chores. So now, Carly, are you Maybe Carly some- has criticism because that yeah. would be helpful. I just have like, yeah, this is really good. Carly, yeah, what, you- what are you going to do to this person in the middle of the grocery aisle? You know what? I had such a flow reading this. I don't know if you guys could feel that, but I was like really in the zone reading this. And I feel like that was a really good sign of how well this query was written. I was like totally feeling this query. I love bringing it to life uh, on audio for you guys. Overall, I thought it was great. You know, I don't have a lot of, of critiques here. The only thing I would say is that there are three body paragraphs 
I understand there's a lot we have to accomplish in terms of explaining everything to the reader. If we could even get it down to two, I would suggest that's probably better than three. It is voicey, but why queries especially tend to be more voicey. So you could take a little bit of like cutesiness out of it, like the wow, he got tall stuff if you wanted to. But I really think, you know, for the right agent, this is going to be totally the right project. I really like that line. I know it's cute. It's cute. It's cute. And then the other note I had was um, probably the most relatable line of the query for myself was most of my minutes are currently spent coaxing two little boys into quality human beings. And I relish a day of coffee transitioning to wine with my husband. Like that's a page out of my book. So uh, yeah, same, same, same. And for the rest of us, we thank you for doing that. We need as many great young men in the world as we possibly can have. So public service announcement. Thank you. You're here. Okay, Cece, do you want to dive into those pages? So like the query letter, very, very good pages. I do have notes because I think it's impossible to read five pages and not have notes, but very polished. If the rest of your manuscript is as polished as this is, I think that you will have a success story in your hands pretty soon. That is my prediction. So for the listener, we are following um, our protagonist who typically does not read people's minds. She has learned to block it out, but she's following her cousin because he's a good guy, but he's meeting these people in the middle of the night and she's just worried for him. Um, there's some really, really good things here. First of all, the writing, it's very clear. It flows really well. It, I'm always in her head. I always understand like the difference between, she's an observer in the scene and yet she is playing an active role. And I felt like she was as essential as the things she was watching, if not more. And that is a testament to, to the author's writing skills. There's some really great detail too. So for example, there's a line where she says, I followed my cousin's thoughts into the corn, thankful for my mom's sturdy work boots stolen from their post by the door as I wobbled on the uneven dirt. It's these small details that tell me that you have really thought through your characters, not just the fact that she's wearing appropriate footwear, but the fact that she stole them from her mom and that it's actually really relevant to the scene because she has to be quiet. She is like watching people who don't know she's they're being watched. So in the middle of the night too, right? So I read this, like I wasn't scared for her because that's a strong word, but I was almost scared for her. Like I was nervous for her. I read this, I think I read this twice because I read this first to find out like what was going to happen. And then I read it again to like actually have notes for this person. So it's really, really good because I was immersed. I was reading this for fun. There's a question I have. She can listen to thoughts, but she can also listen to people talk because she's because she can't, right? Like she she has this ability. So my my question is, can she tell the difference? I always think of that of that Mel Gibson Helen Hunt movie, What Women Want, I think it's called, where he's on the phone with her and he can hear women's thoughts. So on the phone, he doesn't know the difference between a thought and a line she's saying. And because there are moments where she, all she can do, where all she is doing is is listening to his thoughts because she can't quite see them. Does she know the difference? She does say right in the beginning that people's thoughts are really weird and that they're kind of disjointed. So maybe she can, but I had, a, I had that question. I don't need the author to answer this in the first five pages. I am just sharing a question I had. I, as long as this is answered throughout the book, it's fine. Some great description. She like, there's a line where she's observing this, another girl called Jillian. And she describes her as having the kind of hair you'd stare at at lunch line, pondering the way it moved like liquid and until the lunch lady barked at you to keep on moving. 
So lots and lots of really great things. I have two very, very minor notes for you. One, there's a part where you said, so she's thinking of J.D. Greenwood, which is this boy, right? In the query letter, he's the boy who got tall. You ask yourself, you, the protagonist, ask yourself, had he forgiven me? Would he shout? Would he even recognize me? I would suggest not using questions. I would write these out into like actual statements, things like, you know, her, her concern or her fear or... The questions felt a little bit too, like they took me out of it for like a second. But again, very, very minor thing. Didn't totally bother me. The other thing I would say is that she sounded not mature because she does sound like a teenager, but she sounded like someone who who was older than her age, which I, I'm pretty sure is intentional. I, if I were talking to the author, I would ask her, is it your intention to, to show her as a little bit more mature because she has been through so much like with her mind reading? And if the answer is yes, you're on the right track. So really, these are my two notes. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. And uh, this is something that comes up time and again, is that the questions that you point out and you find problematic are the hypothetical questions that the characters kind of asking themselves. So I feel like there has to be a way that authors can work around that. These are questions that they are asking themselves, but we don't have to see the exact thoughts. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that is better done in exposition than is done in just a series of of hypothetical questions. Okay, Carly, what did you think? Yeah, yeah, I would totally agree. I think it all comes down to trusting the reader. And I think that newer authors have a harder time trusting themselves to let themselves trust the reader, right? And that's the disconnect. So I think it's just one of those things you learn um, as your skills and craft evolve. So uh, like Cece, I thought I thought this was really strong. My only main note here is that because the entire setup of the book is based around hearing what other people think, pretty much everything in this sample is all about other people. And because this book is about, you know, this protagonist, we have to care about the protagonist. This setup is inherently making us care more about other people than her. And it's just a tough setup for the novel. So that's my really big suggestion is everything you have on the page is great. Just try to figure out ways that you can actually weave in more information about the, about the main character so we're clear about who the protagonist is because when someone's doing so much of observing we're not actually clear sometimes who the main character is so I would really just like to know more about this main character because clearly they have a lot of stuff that's really interesting so bravo you get um, many many gold stars from all of us so you did a great job awesome thanks Carly okay I'm now going to read the third query letter Dear Carly, Cece and Bianca, thank you for the opportunity to get feedback on my query and opening pages. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I'm very excited to send my novel, The Selkies of Harbour Island, to you for consideration. Selkies aren't real. They're myths in granddad's books. When 13-year-old Sadie O'Connor moves into granddad's old hotel on Harbour Island, she searches for answers to her nana's death, especially her cause of death. But the hotel is full of mysteries from secret passageways in the walls to a murderous local legend based on her mom's disappearance. In her search, Sadie finds clues that Selkies exist. Worst yet, Nana was one. The Selkies of Harbour Island is a 60,000 word speculative fiction, young adult novel that mixes real life with mythology. It will appeal to fans of Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children and The Graveyard Book. 
This is a simultaneous submission. I write speculative fiction that looks at the spaces where the uncanny overlaps with the experiences of marginalized people. As a disabled queer woman, my young adult fiction strives to create a mirror for youth that I didn't have in literature growing up. I have studied with Jacqueline Mitchard at the Yale Writers Workshop and with Robin Black at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Lit Fest. I write and run Best Served Podcasts blog focused on the restaurant industry and my personal blog Need to Sleep about traveling and going to culinary school with a chronic illness. Thank you for your consideration. I appreciate your time and look forward to hearing from you. Thank you, S. Okay, Cece, would you like to dive into that query letter? Let us know what you think. Yes, let's do this. So as a suggestion, I would move paragraph four, the one that starts with the Selkies of Harbor Island is a 60,000 word. So I would move that to paragraph two right now because it's just it just gives us, it's it's the book hook cook um, formula Carly has taught us all. Um, I think it just makes it easier for us to understand what we're going to dive into if we know the parameters of your work right from the beginning. That's a really easy edit and I would just do this. I don't know if everyone else knows what Selkies are, but I didn't. I had to Google. I don't think that's a problem at all because that's what Google is for. But if the author is assuming that people know, I did not. Um, I enjoyed learning. For anyone who doesn't know, they're mythical creatures. They're seals who can transform into humans. And it's really cool. And they have this ability called terianthropy, which is um, terianthropy, I think I'm supposed to be saying, which is when you're when you can shapeshift. And that is cool. My question, and I, I, the answer to this was given to me when I read the pages, but my question was, so she moves in to her granddad's old hotel for the summer, forever. I'm curious. This is not a bad thing. I do not need the answers in the query letter, but it's a good thing that I was curious about the, the reason. And then my note about the plot is... In the very last line, she says, the very last line of the plot paragraph, she says, worse yet, Nana was one. You only get a, f- a certain number of words in a query letter, right? So finding the right word is really important because it could set the tone for your work. I don't know this person, so I don't know if it's their intention. But when I read worse yet, I thought that she was having a problem with her Nana perhaps being a Selkie and her Nana's magical... And I don't think that's the author's intention just because of the, the overall plot of the book. So I'm wondering whether you, you need that worse yet, right? Like maybe, maybe you could convey that that's a fantastical thing, that that's an incredibly surprising thing, that that's something that you're like, oh my God, my mind is blown, as opposed to something that's necessarily bad. I'm guessing, and again, this is a total guess, this is going to be a situation where she's going to learn about a magical world and her grandfather doesn't want her to. Her grandfather wants her to stay in the boring world. And so that worse sets the tone. Very, very minor thing, but every word matters in a query letter. So something I would I would say. Awesome. Cece, thank you. Carly, what did you think? I was really intrigued by this. I thought, you know, we always talk about science fiction fantasy queries being really long because there's a lot of information. And this person got so much information in, in one paragraph, which was very impressive. I think it can be a little longer because I do think we have some questions, but, uh, but they were definitely, you know, had concision in mind, which was excellent. My big note here, is that I'm not clear on what's at stake now that she finds out. So, you know, she moves to the island, you know, she's in this old hotel. Obviously, there's some losses in her 
life that were kind of explained uh, here. And then when it says worse yet, Nana was one. I almost got the sense that it was it was worse because she thought they weren't real. And now she realizes that everything she's ever known is turned on its head. But again, I still don't understand what's at stake now that she knows. Is it her life? Is it everything? Yeah, again, her whole world? Because this is a, um, because it's YA, that emotionality of like, my world is upending as I know it is a big theme, but we still need to have an actual plot here. So this is, it seems very passive to me. You know, we're witnessing a lot of things. A lot of things are happening to this character, but I'm not clear on what's at stake now that she's found out or what's going to happen next kind of thing. So I would like just a little bit, a little bit more into that insight, but I thought overall it was really well done. Great. Okay, Cece, what did you think of the actual pages? All right. For the listener, our protagonist is on the way to her Nana's funeral. They're on a limo. Her granddad is 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 telling her to just like stop fidgeting and stuff like that. Like he he isn't very touchy feely unless they're in public or something. And then he's more affectionate. So I don't know if you're starting maybe in the right place or if if it's more of like a you are starting, but it just needs to be edited. There's there's a lot of backstory that I don't think we need to know right off the bat. Starting on the second page, I believe, you know, we get a lot of information. It's the, it's the line that starts with Sadie's strange upbringing started with the Galway Hotel. And I'm like, I guess I'm just wondering why do we need to know like all these details on the first page? I would rather be in scene at the funeral and then have her interact more with her surroundings. I still want it to be voicey. I still want to be inside her mind. I still want to know like what's working and what's not because we are learning a lot about what's working in her life and what's not. And that part is good. But I think it can be woven in to the scene a bit more. We got very little in the limo, for example, which is fine. Like we can just move on to, to, to the actual funeral. But we were, but we did spend a lot of time in her head learning about backstory while we were in the limo. So so let me t- let me let me count. I think it's three full pages. Yeah, we're talking about three full pages of of her on the limo and nothing really happens in in the limo. So so I'm wondering whether you could perhaps cut back on that and then weave it into the scene and then weave it into future scenes as well. Her voice was very mature. I have two examples. One was when she says, referring to her grandfather, he was always doing gestures like that. He only showed her physical affection when they were around other people. And then the second example when they are at the funeral and she sees a woman who she does not know who she is because she doesn't recognize her crying and she says to herself she really should pull herself together Sadie thought I don't know if this is intentional but she sounds she doesn't sound like a teenager and we just actually covered a query where I thought she sounded mature for a teenager and that's okay as long as it's intentional in this case I for my taste for my ears she didn't sound like a teenager at all she sounded like a grown woman and I don't know maybe there's reason for that and that's okay if there's a reason but it you know it, it gave me pause because of the genre So I would revise this if this is not intentional. If the idea is to convey that this woman at the funeral is someone really mysterious and someone who's going to really matter, and I'm pretty sure that it is, right? Because the woman keeps looking away whenever Sadie looks at her and keeps staring at her. I would perhaps just, you know, take us to the funeral a little bit earlier so that we're more intrigued and it happens a little bit faster. So yeah, I think the pace here needs work. And I'm not going to say it's going to be an easy fix, assuming these notes even resonate with you. But I do think it's it's an editing fix, right? Like it's not, I don't think it's that you don't know your character. I think it's really more about editing. And then the voice. Yeah, these are my two notes. Awesome. Cece, thanks. Kali, what did you have to add to that? Yeah, Cece and I are totally on the same page about the voice. That was my big, big note. My last note, I'll go back to the beginning too, but my last note of the whole section of these samples was, it feels more coming of age than YA almost. 
text the way that it's written, which I think, you know, I think the author just has to kind of decide who they ultimately think the audience for the book is. Because when it's coming of age, we're assuming it's a more of an adult audience with a crossover potential, which I think the way that this is reading is a bit more coming of age to me personally. But again, we've only seen five pages, so it's hard for us to know. So just coming back to the beginning now, I found we were moving back and forth a lot. So we're kind of in this scene of them, you know, in the limo on the way to the funeral. But we are going back and forth a little bit in terms of like remembering about her Nana and then we're in the limo and then we're here and then we're like I just didn't really feel grounded at all not only are we in a moving vehicle we are, we are in a moving vehicle moving back and forth in time and spatially I have just a little you know bit of an issue grounding myself in this project so I would have really just liked to be in the limo or at the funeral my spatial sense was really off here in terms of being and being bounced around the other thing is that I think this comes back to what CC and I've been saying about the voice and, and who this is for is that like how does she feel about all of this stuff you know we're, we're getting a lot of you know things happening distantly and and we were aware of them happening to her but we don't really get a sense of like does she feel that her grandfather is mean or neglectful like we're you know there's a difference there right and how does she actually feel about you know losing the parents and things like that it just it felt like this person had grown up really fast and if they have grown up really fast then explain to us why they grew up or how she feels about having grown up. so for me those were some some questions that needed to be answered but as always whenever we're debating a project that always means that there's a lot of great stuff here to work with. And then just to let you know what we've got coming up, Carly and Cece will be running a webinar called Writing the Perfect First Five Pages, and that will be on the 15th of July at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Just to tell you a bit more about the course, literary agents are tasked with recognizing great books quickly, which is why the importance of the first five pages of a story cannot be overestimated. No matter the genre, the perfect five pages will draw your readers in from the very start and compel them to read on. If you would like to learn more about what the webinar will entail, head to Carly and Cece's Instagram pages where you can get more information and where you'll be able to register. Cece is available for one-on-one meetings and written critiques via Manuscript Academy. You can search for that on manuscriptacademy.com, Cecilia Lira. Manuscript Academy is a year-round online writers conference and you can make an appointment with Cece for her to take a look at your first 10 pages, discuss your work, whatever the case may be is. I have various courses that will be coming up. Please go to my website, biancamaray.com, to have a look at that schedule and to make any bookings. I'll be tackling different elements of craft and doing deep dives into them over sessions that run for three hours. These sessions will be taped so you will be able to watch them even if you aren't in the Eastern time zone. And then finally, we have started a Kofi page. There are a lot of costs associated with running a podcast. So if you are able to make a donation to us there at Kofi, we would greatly appreciate it. You can find the link on my Twitter profile or on my Instagram page or have a look on the website under biancamaray.com under the podcast section. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. 
Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest earned her MA in Literature from San Francisco State University, and her essays and interviews have appeared in the Washington Post, The Rumpus, Edible Austin, and Austin Monthly. Her debut novel, Big Woods, won multiple awards. A Texas native, she lives in Austin with her family. It's my pleasure to welcome May Cobb. May, welcome to the show. What a treat to get to chat to you. I loved The Hunting Wives. It's one of the books that I devoured lately, and that's not true of many, many books that I've read in the last year. So welcome to the show and congratulations on its release. Thank you so much. And that's such a nice compliment. I'm so happy to hear it. You've been getting tremendous, tremendous buzz, which is wonderful to see. I've been seeing the book for months all over Instagram. I've been seeing Instagrammers raving about it, et cetera. So that must be really, really gratifying. 
It is. It's 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 surreal, and it's it's so it's so wonderful to see to have that kind of feedback has been great. And this is your sophomore book, right? It's your second novel. Yes, that's right. And that's amazing. So mostly they speak of the sophomore slump in which a first book will do well. And the second book they say is always tricky. So it's not many writers who really do phenomenally well with their second books. I'm thinking like Chloe Benjamin with The Immortalists. Your first book won a lot of awards. I think this is the book that's really, really commercially successful. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So my first book, that's an interesting story. It's called Big Woods and it came out in 2018 from a really small press called Midnight Inc., which is now defunct. And I was at a I was at a real crossroads when it came out of because I've been trying to be a writer for 25 years. And I was at a real crossroads, like, do I really need to try to keep pushing to make this a career or something I can do full time or support myself and my family with? Or is it really time to do something else? And so I think it was very motivating to try to to come up with something that I thought I was also in between agents. So I was really trying to swing for the fences with something that might catch another agent's eye, but not really having that in my head as I was writing, really trying to get lost in the story, of course. But honestly, it was my last roll of the dice to try to make it as a writer. So, well, I mean, you knocked it out the park. So there's that. And, you know, something we do on our podcast. So we have two agents and every week we read query letters from emerging writers and we read their first five pages and we give them critique to try and help them polish it in terms of finding agents, etc. And the thing that we are constantly having to say to people who submit their work to us is how careful they need to be with characters who aren't particularly likable because it's really, really tricky. And we say time and again that characters don't have to be likable. They just have to be vulnerable. There has to be something there that the reader is going to connect with so that even if the reader doesn't particularly like them, they're prepared to spend however many pages with them. And you have written a book that is full of these kind of gray area characters. I don't want to say that they're unlikable. Certainly some of them are, not all of them are. So could you tell us firstly why you wanted to do that and your approach to it? Yeah, I and and I love that y'all do that because it's so true. That was some editorial feedback I got in the beginning, especially with my main character, Sophie's character. Some of the editorial notes, which were so great and made it so much better, was that like she's relatable but she's making these questionable decisions and we kind of need to understand more why she needs to be more relatable. So she's not unlikable or off-putting and you're right. It's not like characters can be despicable and unlikable and we still can fall in love with them and want to read about them. But I do feel like, like you said, they need to, their vulnerability is huge and relatability. And as far as the other ones, there, there are some downright despicable, wicked women in this book and um, they were just fun to write. Why? I don't know why, why is that? Why are despicable characters fun to write and read? Yeah. I mean, I think, Think of, you know, one of my favorite books in the genre is You by Carolyn Kepners. Yes. You know, Joe should be the, I mean, he is the most appalling character. And yet <laughs> we weirdly find ourselves rooting for him because I feel like what she did there is that she 
wrote him in a way that we could understand his logic. And there were so many things that he said that we could tap into, like he hated pretentious people. And there were certain things about the world that he hated. And we were like, yeah, we hate that too. We were on board. And then suddenly we find out he's a complete psychopath. And you're like... (laughs) oh shit, I'm already invested in this character who's now a psychopath. Okay. But here's the thing is that in literature and in television shows, there doesn't seem to be a problem with having unlikable male characters. It's perfectly fine for men to be assholes. It's perfectly fine for them to be shits. It's not fine for women to be like that. Like for example, Girl Boss was a Netflix show, which I really loved. It didn't get very far because everybody hated the protagonist because she wasn't soft and sympathetic and all of these things. So is this something that you were thinking about when you started writing this novel and it's something you wanted to explore? Absolutely. And I am obsessed with you. And Carolyn Kempnis does such a great job, as you say, of pulling us into Joe's character. I just had to give that shout out because that was such a huge influence on The Hunting Wives. Yeah, absolutely. I knew from the outset that I really did want to do my part in rupturing likable female characters because I just feel like women have the same urges and the same complexity that men do. And we should be allowed the space to explore that in all its messy glory. And that's why I loved that film Unfaithful with Diane Lane. I don't know if you remember that, but Richard Gere, you know, her spouse is so wonderful. And it's like, why is she stepping out on him? Well, there's lust, but then there's all these other things. And I feel like society doesn't want us to do that and explore that. And I just, yes, I was very adamant, obviously, about stepping on the gas with that and really trying to to punch outside the box. Yeah, I, you, you, really, you really leaned into it and it was amazing. And I hope that this helps pave the way for way more unlikable or unsympathetic female characters. So in terms of the editorial notes you were getting, how did you then make her more relatable, more likable? Was it in terms of figuring out her backstory, figuring out her vulnerabilities? You know, Lisa Cron in Story Genius talks about a character's misbelief in that when we are children, things happen to us and this forms our entire misbelief of the world. And these kinds of things make us vulnerable. And, you know, I tell my creative writing students all the time, you have to get to know your characters and characterization is like an iceberg. What the reader sees is the tip of the iceberg, but what the novelist has to know is that huge chunk of ice under the water. So tell us about your approach to it. It's so very true. That was part of the big notes I got was let's figure out Sophie more. And a lot of it was, as you say, digging into her backstory. Why is she behaving this way? What's driving her? What's pushing her? What is fueling her obsession? And it's interesting because it was all in my head. Like I could really relate to that. And not because I'm Sophie or anything like that, but I could kind of relate to that sort of modern female sense of restlessness and railing against the monotony of motherhood. <laughs> and um, But really a lot of the work was looking into Sophie's childhood because she did have a rootless childhood. Her mother was a traveling ER nurse and she moved her around and the dad abandoned her. And that really did help, like you said, kind of cement Sophie's misbelief to where she's always craves stability because of that. But then there's this other side of her that craves the bad boy. And in this case, the bad 
bad girl and she is not at one with herself enough to even realize it, that she's playing out this sort of chasing this hole in her heart that was created when she was little. She's a complex character, man. She's like an onion. There's so many different layers and you keep reading. And even as she's making bad choices, you're kind of going, oh God, Sophie, don't do it. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> But there's another part of you that's like, do it, do it. Let's see, (laughs) push those boundaries. Let's see what's going to happen. Because when you're younger, it feels like your life is this infinite highway full of all these off-ramps and lanes and, and so many different places you can go. But as you get older, it feels like you're stuck on one long highway because you've made so many choices that have closed all of these doors, all of these possibilities. And so you tend to feel stuck on this monotonous road, just going forward. Yes, absolutely. That is just, you know, I might have to borrow that because it's so true and credit you, of course, but it, and that's, you know, Sophie's 38. So she's got the husband, she's got the kid, a lot of stuff has kind of fallen into place for her. And as wonderful as that is, sometimes she feels extremely stifled by it. And that's the thing, you know, we make all these choices, we we do these things that we think we should want, that everybody else wants, and even that we ourselves at some point want. But, you know, that doesn't mean that once these things happen for us, that we should just be happy with it, even with all of its limitations, or that we shouldn't wonder at all the other things that are out there as well. And so it's great to see those kinds of characters reflected to us in fiction. I really tried to make that come across with Sophie because I do feel like there's this pressure to be happy now as women and to be happy on Instagram constantly. And it's like, really, are we all this happy? I mean, it's great if everyone else is, but I don't know how real that is because even though the world has changed dramatically for women and gotten so much better, it's almost like there's another kind of pressure, that happiness pressure. I just feel like men are never kind of questioned in literature and life if there's infidelity, like, oh yeah, of course. But with women, there has to be a big reason. And I don't, I don't know why that is. We're, we're animals too. (laughs) We're human too. Yeah. As well. It's like, for women, I know a, an author in New Zealand who was very vocal about the fact that she wanted to have a child and she was having huge issues in terms of fertility. And it took her a long, long, long time. And they spent a fortune for, for them to be able to have this child. And then they had the child and she would post on social media about how difficult it was to be a mother and things like that. And people just try to shut her down. And they were like, well, you desperately wanted this child. So now you need to shut up and you need to just suck it up. And, (laughs) you know, that to me was mind blowing to me. I mean, you can want something desperately and still struggle with it, with all the things that come with it when you get it. I can so believe people's clap back about that. And it's just, that's, but, and I can so understand that person because motherhood is so, it can be so incredibly difficult and yeah, every, you know, if you, you might want it. And then once it's here, it's, it's doesn't make it any less difficult. And the mom shaming that goes on is just profound. I feel like there's a minefield of novels that could be written about that because it's powerful. Yeah. And those are elements that you touch on in your book. And I loved on how you touched again on social media in terms of Instagram worthy moments. Sophie has this blog, this lifestyle or whatever blog in which, you know, she's like, everything's great. And every picture she takes, there's all these hashtags about how great her life is. And meantime, she's hating it. And she (laughs) just can't say she's damn well hating it. So, you know, there is this way in which we curate our lives to make it look like everything's perfect, everything's great, 
Meantime, the things that are happening under the surface, because all of these women have, I I don't want to give plot points away, but they all are pretending that they have these wonderful marriages, that they are these wonderful parents. Meantime, the things that are happening on the side are, you know, mind blowing. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a great way to say it. Maybe we should start a revolution of um, (laughs) posting unsavory things about our lives. Like, oh, I burnt dinner again. Oh, shit. Or something. That's so tame. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Like, oh, look at this guy's butt. Hashtag had an inappropriate (laughs) thought about someone who wasn't my husband. I mean, you know, it's, that's great. I love it. We'll we'll be called predatory, so maybe not, but oh, yeah. certainly yeah. <laughs> the, the curated lifestyle is is definitely a problem. In terms of guns and Texas, you're a native Texan. Tell us about how that informed the story and how guns informed the story. Were they going to be a part of it from the beginning, or was this kind of a hook or a theme you wanted to explore? Yeah. So the original idea came from my mother who grew up in Longview like I did. Mapleton is the fictionalized version of Longview and it's a small town in East Texas. And she told me this story once about a hunting party in high school, which would have been in the mid sixties. And she got invited to it once and it was all the rich popular guys and they had their shotguns and they sat in the woods on the hood of their giant cars and they shot at like small rabbits. And as she was telling me this, I was like, that could go so wrong so quickly testosterone alcohol guns like what could possibly go wrong (laughs) exactly and I thought it would be really interesting to make it all female and I think part of that was is because I'm I'm such a Ruth Ware fan and I loved in a dark dark wood and I thought well let me I would love to do something in that vein so I wanted it to be like the secret click an elite click and then the whole gun thing and I grew up in that town and it was it wasn't uncommon like my grandfather was was a hunter. My dad was a hunter. Guns were just there. And then, you know, I definitely went skeet shooting a time or two. I personally didn't love it because like Sophie, I didn't like the shotgun kick on my arm. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm out. But it was it was definitely a pastime growing up. And uh, yeah, and it's it, I think it's still part of the culture there. There's everyone, you know, a lot of people have a deer lease or a hunting lease. And now it seems like it has become sort of a girl's night thing to do with the skeet shooting and shooting ranges. People need stuff to do in small towns like that, I think. So it's sort of a pressure cooker. I also feel like women have just got so much rage. And I feel like (laughs) shooting at a target is a socially acceptable way to take out that rage. I mean, I'm pretty much anti-guns, but I have been taken to a shooting range once or twice and I've done the skeet shooting and I found out that I'm actually damn good at it. Ooh, I love it. And there's not much I'm really good at. And that was (laughs) one of the things. But I was surprised by how cathartic it was to kind of just stand there shooting the shit out of some target and knowing, you know, I don't have a gun in my home. I'm not going to put anyone's life at risk. And, you know, in that instant, it felt like kind of just a sport that was in a controlled environment. And I think women just really, we have a lot of rage after the last few years. We've got Me Too. We've got how COVID has affected women and set the women's rights movement back so much. So this really tapped into that for me. I was like, hell yes, I'd like to shoot the shit out of a whole (laughs) bunch of things as well. And it sounds like you would have made a better hunting wife than Sophie with your shooting skill level. (laughs) I remember the first kick on my shoulder as well. That was like, what? Yeah, yeah. 
your journey to publication, I mean, you said it took 25 years and then you publish and the publisher goes bang. And then you finally have this book that really captures the imagination, gets so much attention. And that's hugely inspiring for so many of our listeners who are either have written a novel that's been rejected and they can't get an agent to represent them, et cetera, et cetera. So what advice do you have for them in terms of either coming up with that one idea that is just a phenomenal idea and taps into something or in terms of learning the craft or in terms of just general advice? Yeah, I could speak about this for days. I absolutely think writers are called to it for a reason. And if there is a reason you want to be a writer and you have a story within you, you have to persevere and you just absolutely can't give up. And you need to surround yourself with people that believe in you and be maybe be a little careful with who you share your work with because I shared this with an early reader and they were like, yeah, there's not a zinger here. And that shut me down. And then my best friend came into town and she read it and she was like, you get your ass in that room and you finish this right now. So my advice is persevere, be protective of your work, also be open to feedback. And in terms of coming up with an idea, before I was going to sit down to invest my time in The Hunting Wives, I was thinking of another thriller. And one of my friends said to me, you need to write the one that's keeping you up at night, not the safe one that you think you can sell. Cause I thought the other one was safer. I thought, like I said, I was in between agents. That's a scary thing to fire an agent and then to go out on the hunt for a new one. And here I go with my hunting puns. So I, t- I took that advice. I was like, yeah, I'm going to write this one that's in my mind. So I, I think write what's keeping you up at night. Don't try to chase trends because I think writers make trends. And that's really important to remember. So I, I feel like whatever the story you can't get out of your head. And, and the pandemic has also put everyone in this giant fog. So if you don't have something that's keeping you up at night, because I don't think many of us do right now, just remember that when you sit down to write, it's not going to come across to readers if it's flat or not. Trust that it won't. Because oftentimes I've wondered, and then it gets a good reception later. So I think a lot of that, you know, just write past your own fears and blocks and write as much as you possibly read as much as you possibly can. I don't have an MFA. I have really studied from reading other authors. And and you've said things now that I've mentioned before on the podcast. So Elizabeth Gilbert wrote an amazing article for the Oprah website or O Magazine about the four things you should look for before showing someone your work. And she speaks as well about showing her early work to someone who was the wrong person to show her work to. So there's like four key criteria. And I suggest to all of you, you Google that article. Because while I'm constantly telling you to find writing groups and to find people who can help you take your writing to the next level, it is important that they are the right people and that they're on board with what you're trying to do. And I recently spoke to Lily King, who wrote Writers and Lovers, and we spoke about finding your Muriel. And the, the Muriel is the person in your life who is your biggest cheerleader and who believes in your work. And I'm so glad, May, that your best friend was that person for you, because I as well in the early drafts of my debut novel, Hum, If You Don't Know the Words, got terrible, terrible feedback from a creative writing instructor, actually, that made me want to set that novel aside. And it made me believe that story was awful. And then I took another creative writing course. And I was just so lucky that that person made me have faith in it again and gave me that confidence again. So certainly go out there, find your Muriel, 
uh, because we all need one. May, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. I could chat to you all day. I wish you so much success with this book. Everybody, as you now know, we are affiliates with bookshop.org because we love supporting independent bookstores. May's book is on our affiliate page. If you want to purchase it, please go to my website, follow the link there to the affiliate page and make that purchase. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. 
Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.